This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, you should be praying for the noble family. Uh, Matt was looking forward to preaching his first sermon here at University Park today from Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and he contacted uh, me and Dave and, and some others yesterday morning. Uh, he has come down with a bad case of the flu uh, and just wasn't able to be here. And so pray for him. Uh, he was very excited about being here this morning to preach God's word to us. Uh, instead, you are left with me. So uh, there's that. Uh, pray for me as we jump into 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy is a letter that is written from the Apostle Paul to his child in the faith, Timothy. At the time of the writing, Timothy was the lead elder of the church in Ephesus, and Paul was likely writing this letter to Timothy from prison. It's also likely that Paul was near death. And so Paul was taking this opportunity to encourage and to exhort Timothy to stay in the city of Ephesus and to shepherd the flock of God in that city. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, the apostle thanks God for the salvation that was given to him and the strength to carry out this gospel ministry. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is overflowing in these words with thanksgiving for God's kindness, even as he recounts his days as a blasphemer, as an opponent of God, a persecutor, a terrorist of God's people. Verse 14, Paul tells Tim Timothy how he received mercy from God and how the grace of God was poured out into his heart with faith and love in Jesus Christ. And it's at this point in chapter 1 where the apostle he seems to pause for a moment, and it's as if the apostle stops and he looks Timothy square in the eyes and he says, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We're going to focus our attention this morning on verse 15. On verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And Lord willing, we will study this trustworthy saying this morning in three sections. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline for the sermon. The first section will consider the faithful word. The faithful word. Secondly, we'll consider the incarnate word. The incarnate word. Third, the saving word. So the faithful word, the incarnate word, and the saving word. But before we jump into verse 15 this morning, let's pause. And let's ask God to be with us as we consider his word. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we come to your word asking that by your Holy Spirit that what we know not, teach us. That what we are not, make us. And that what we have not, give us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, first, notice that Paul says in verse 15 that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You know, a few years ago, uh, the Gallup organization uh, polled Americans and asked the Americans uh, in this poll to rate the honesty and ethical standards of members of various professions. The results of that poll were not particularly surprising to me. Uh, Nurses and medical professionals and teachers all received a high or very high rating for trustworthiness. Something like 82% of the population rated those professions as high or very high on the trustworthy scale. Unfortunately, only 20% of the population thought highly or very highly of attorneys. I am an attorney. Some of you are attorneys. But not to be outdone, politicians rounded out the bottom. Politicians rounded out the bottom of the list, polling in the single digits. And this was a poll a few years ago. Can you imagine what it would be even today? I trust that by God's grace, members of this congregation, who are attorneys or even politicians, uh, that you are the exceptions rather than the rule. You are, in fact, trustworthy and have high ethical standards, or Lord, we pray. Uh, What we can learn from this Gallup poll is that at the end of the day, Perceived trust matters, but really even more than that, actual trust matters. It matters when we have a trustworthy source or not. And so here in verse 15, the apostle is claiming to give us trustworthy words. He says the saying is trustworthy. It is not fake news. It is a faithful saying. And these words we know are only trustworthy if they are words from a trustworthy source. Can you imagine going in for a cancer screening and your doctor has on his wall a PhD in English literature? Nothing against English literature uh, doctorates or history doctorates or anything else that Lou or Colin may teach. But when my life is on the line, I want a medical doctor, a medical doctor who can diagnose what the medical issue really is. And this is what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy and telling us. That in the first part of verse 15, that this saying is trustworthy because it comes from a trustworthy source. It's trustworthy because Paul is the one saying it. And at least to Timothy, Paul is a trustworthy source. The Apostle Paul was the spiritual father to Timothy. Paul was the great missionary of the early church. Paul was a man of great learning, having sat at the feet of the esteemed philosopher and lawyer in the, in the Jewish world, Gamaliel. Tim, Timothy has every reason to trust Paul. The people in Ephesus have reason to trust Paul. But did you notice that Paul, Paul roots his own authority and his own trustworthiness in verse 12? Verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me 
to his service. So Paul roots his trustworthiness, his authority as an apostle in someone else. In verse 1, the apostle Paul, he refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God, our Savior. And so Paul recognizes that his authority is a derivative authority. It is an authority that is derived from God himself. That Paul's words here are not trustworthy in and of themselves. That his words are trustworthy only because God had given Paul authority. And God is always trustworthy. And so in 1 Timothy 1.15, we actually have a declaration of the inspiration of Scripture. Paul's claim is that, his, is that this saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is from the very mouth of God. And of course it is. This saying is only a restatement, a summary of God's promise thousands of years before in Genesis 3.15. On that fateful and tragic day, our first parents, Adam and Eve, obeyed the word of Satan and disobeyed the word of God. And yet, God, in his great love and in his immeasurable mercy, spoke a promise to our first parents. He promised that a baby boy would, in fact, come into the world to save sinners. And this thread is woven throughout the fabric of the Bible. God was true to His Word. God's Son, Jesus Christ, did come into the world to save sinners. And so the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance because God Himself is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And if God was true to His Word here, then certainly every word of God in the Scripture is true and trustworthy. Loved one, how gracious has God been to you to reveal himself, to give you trustworthy words, words that you do not have to doubt, words that can bring comfort and assurance in the midst of your pain, because our God is trustworthy. The same God who spoke the universe into existence is the same God who is even now speaking to us by his Holy Spirit through the word of God. This is why personal Bible reading is so important for our devotional life. This is why every opportunity we have to gather together to read and study God's Word is an opportunity to receive grace from the God of glory. But even more than all of that, this is why when we gather together with the saints of God, we prioritize the hearing, the preaching, the singing, the praying of the Word of God. We gather together to hear the Word of God preached to us, to, to have the Word exposited to us. It is as if every time we gather together, loved ones, to hear God's Word preached, when it is preached rightly, it is as if we are gathered together to hear God Himself speak to us. And so, brothers and sisters, we should be concerned primarily that our pastors and elders and anyone who would fill this pulpit, that they are godly men, but we should also be equally as concerned that the men who stand here and teach us his word rightly exposit, rightly preach the word of God to us. Because the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord 
it endures forever, forever. When each one of us are dead and gone, God's word will be marching forth to accomplish all that God intends. And so we must prioritize that our pastors and elders are godly men and that they rightly preach the word of God to us. God's word is trustworthy. But you see, God has not only given us his word in a book, but God has given us his word in a person. In the incarnation of the Word of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the saying is trustworthy and it is deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world. And so here the Apostle states a simple yet profound truth that God became a man. God became a man. I fear at times that that Christians, that we are too familiar with the overwhelming reality that God, God who is a spirit, God who is infinite, God who is eternal, God who is unchangeable in his very being and wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, that this God became a man. God is a spirit. You cannot see him. God is infinite. There is no limit to how great he is. God is eternal. He never had a beginning and he will never cease to exist. God is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the only living and true God. And this God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same in essence, equal in power and in glory. And it is the claim of the Bible, and it is the confession of the church throughout all generations that God the Son became a man in Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world, born of the Virgin Mary in the town of Bethlehem. He was raised in that insignificant town of Nazareth. He worked as a carpenter with his father in the flesh, Joseph. And for the first 30 years of his life, God in the flesh lived an obscure, ordinary Jewish life in the Roman Empire. The eternal Son of God left his throne in glory and came into the world as a common man. Loved ones, how often have you considered the humanity of Jesus Christ? The humanity of Jesus Christ. That old Anglican, J.C. Ryle, reminds us to never let it be forgotten that Jesus has a real human body. He has a real human body. A body exactly like our own, just as sensitive, just as vulnerable, just as capable of feeling intense pain and suffering. And so friends, let me encourage you this morning to consider the man, Jesus Christ. The humanity of Jesus affirms the ongoing goodness of his creation. Though this world is under a curse because of our sin, Christian, you can take great joy in the beauty and the majesty and the creativity of creation because your beautiful and majestic and creative God made it. And he reaffirmed its goodness 
whenever that God became a man in Jesus Christ. We do not live in a world where we are simply waiting to be taken out of the world into an ephemeral and spiritual existence. We live in a world that was created good by our God, that is under the curse of sin, groaning for the revealing of the sons of God in that time so that all of creation can be made new by Jesus Christ. And so we can enjoy, brothers and sisters, all of God's good gifts in creation. And the humanity of Jesus also means that Jesus can empathize with the common and ordinary and mundane moments of life. Jesus experienced the day-to-day life of a man. Jesus experienced the day-to-day life of a child. Children, Jesus Christ was your age one time. He lived as an eight-year-old and as a 10-year-old, and as a 12-year-old. Jesus Christ lived a life that we all live in our flesh. Jesus experienced the day-to-day life of humanity. And yet, Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge of God. He persevered. He lived faithfully unto God. Jesus can empathize with the sometimes boring routine of life. Surely many of you can attest to the drudgery of work at times, to the mundane realities of life in the home and in the marketplace. And Jesus Christ can empathize with you. Jesus can empathize in our drudgery. But let him also encourage us. Encourage us to work through that drudgery, to persevere through it with joy. With joy because God is in fact at work even in the ordinary and mundane realities of life. Let us grow in our perseverance and in our faithfulness unto God through every moment of our life. The humanity of Jesus also means that he knows our suffering. He knows our suffering. Even now, Jesus Christ bears in his body the scars in from the cross. Jesus tasted suffering and death. And yea, Christian, though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus Christ is there with you. Jesus Christ is there to comfort you because Jesus Christ has tasted death for you, loved one. Jesus Christ is truly man. But of course, Jesus is not only a man. Jesus is not only a man. Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly God and God came into the world. The creator of all became a creature so that he might serve as our redeemer. We could spend a lifetime diving deep into this great and glorious mystery that God became a man in Jesus Christ. But we only have a few minutes this morning, and I know many of you will want to go to lunch. So we can look to an old Baptist catechism. An old Baptist catechism that summarizes well for us what it means that Jesus came into the world as our God-man. That old catechism says that Jesus Christ the Lord performs for us in his incarnation the offices of a prophet and a priest and a king. Christ the Lord came as our prophet, 
Prophets speak the word of God. When we hear the word prophet, it may conjure up in our mind images of, of telling the future. It may conjure up in our minds uh, uh, debates around end times. Prophets do foretell. They do tell the future. But in redemptive history in the Bible, prophets primarily foretell. They do foretell, but they primarily foretell. They deliver a word from God to a people. And so Moses delivered promises from God about the future, that's true, but only in the context of an immediate pronouncement of judgment and redemption. Ezekiel prophesied of the resurrection of the dead, but he did so in a way that the valley of dry bones was an indictment on the spiritual condition of all humanity. Prophets foretell the future, yes, but in the context of foretelling God's judgment and God's plan of redemption. And so it is with the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah of Micah and Jonah and of others. And so it is with Jesus Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things and through whom He created the world. Jesus foretells our condition before God, and this is the verdict. That Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world, but that people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. We are all by nature sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And therefore, we stand condemned before God. Because we have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And Jesus not only foretells of our pending judgment, He foretells the destiny of all who would refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. A destiny that is bound for eternal and conscious punishment in hell. Jesus is our prophet. But Jesus the prophet tells a better word of redemption as Jesus our priest. When our first parents Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the relationship between God and man was ruined. We may bear the image of God, but as sinners we act as enemies of God. There must be a mediator between God and between man. And so God's first gracious act of mediation came when God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. God shed the blood of an animal because of the sin of man and so revealed the payment that was necessary to cover the sin of man without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9.22. God graciously instituted the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system for His people Israel that they may have communion with God. And in the tabernacle of old, the priests would enter into the first section, the holy place, and perform the ritual duties. But into the holy of holies, the most holy place, only the high priest would go, and that once a year, on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Year after year after year, that high priest would offer this sacrifice and the sacrifice was never finished. But when the Lord Jesus appeared as a high priest, He entered once into the holy places. Places not 
made by hands, and he entered not by the means of blood and of goats and calves and bulls, but by the means of his own blood. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, but into glory itself, even now to appear in the presence of God on behalf of his people. And Jesus didn't offer, didn't, uh, didn't offer himself repeatedly like the sacrifices of old. Jesus Christ appeared once to put away sin by the death of himself on a cross. And so Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, salvation in his name. Jesus Christ is our priest. The Lord Jesus came as our prophet. He came as our priest. And the Lord Jesus came as our king. In 2 Samuel 7, we mentioned this last week, God promised that Christ would come and be an heir to King David's throne. And so the Israelites anticipated that this Messiah would be a conquering king, coming to establish the kingdom of Israel on the earth. But what they did not anticipate is that the Messiah would come not to establish the kingdom of Israel, but to establish the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is even now waging war against powers and principalities of darkness. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. A second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for his appearing. Christ came once to save sinners, and Christ will come again to consummate his kingdom. And so we can say of our king, to him who sits on the throne, and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion, now and forever and forever. God's word is trustworthy, and the Son of God came into the world as our prophet and our priest and our king. And now let us turn and consider what he accomplished in his coming, the salvation of sinners. You know, it's been said that the doctrine of sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Some of you understand what I just said. Some of you may have not. That is to say, we can all look out and we can see sin. Every one of us in our own lives and in the lives of others, we see it and we can empirically verify it that yes, as a matter of fact, we're a bunch of sinners. I've mentioned sin several times in this sermon already, but I've not defined sin. I think it's important in our day and age to define sin. We live in a world where even the church of Jesus Christ seems to not want to talk about sin. Certainly the world has rejected the Christian understanding of sin. And so we need to define it. We need to know what sin is if we're going to repent of it. Sin is present throughout the entire Bible except for the first two chapters of Genesis. Sin has been present in your life since the day of your birth. Sin distorts our human experience. We know in our conscience that we are sinners, that there is something dreadfully wrong with us, there's something dreadfully wrong with the world around us, and everything is not as it should be. And so what is this thing we call sin? Well, the Bible uses several words and concepts to describe different aspects of sin. Depravity, corruption, error, iniquity, transgression. The old Baptist catechism defines sin 
as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God's law, against God's ways, and against God's trustworthy word. So my hope this morning is that you will grasp the sinfulness of sin. Sin causes corruption in the midst of purity. Sin causes evil in the midst of good. And sin causes death. Death in the midst of life. Sin kills. In the garden, God said to our first parents, You shall eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for if you do, you shall surely die. That is God's command. And did our first parents have any want of conformity unto or transgression thereof? That first command? Tempted by the serpent's false witness against God, our first parents ate and sinned against God. God's word to Adam and Eve was trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. And God's word to Adam and Eve was trustworthy when in fact they surely died. God's world began with vibrant life. His very good creation was meant to bless his creatures and bring glory to his name. And so how appropriate the refrain, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. And how startling then is the new refrain. After Genesis 3, a refrain that echoes down through the ages of human history. A refrain that echoes in every human heart even now. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Humanity, from that day to this day, lives in the grip and the fear of death. Our bodies, like the rest of creation, are burdened with the curse of our sin. And we, like creation, groan inwardly. We know this is not the way it's meant to be. Death is not natural. Death is an intruder into life. And even as haunting as physical death is, we are by nature spiritually dead. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. Or as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We follow after wickedness. Surely God's word is true when he says the wages of sin is death. God's wrath is revealed in the death of sinners. But also God's wrath is revealed in the judgment of sinners in hell. It is appointed unto man to die once, that is true. But after that comes judgment. God is holy and God is eternal. Any offense against God must be met with an eternal righteous punishment. The Bible gives us several descriptions of hell a fiery lake of burning sulfur, eternal punishment, 
everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord. Each description is meant to elicit great terror and to make clear how high the stakes, how urgent the need for gospel faith. Without the gracious intervention of God, sinners really are the walking dead, walking into eternal separation from God, walking straight into hell. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I simply ask you, do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you know that you haven't just made a few bad decisions here and there? Do you know that if you believe that, you are deceived? Friend, do not play the equivocation game. Do not downplay the reality of your sin. Do not judge yourself relative to other people. Friend, there is but one standard by which God will judge you, and you have already been found guilty. You cannot save yourself from the consequences of your sin, and you face an eternal punishment for your rebellion against an eternal God. Friend, you need a miraculous intervention from God, to save you from God. And friend, the good news, the good news is that God has graciously intervened. God set in motion a redemption mission that weaves itself throughout the entirety of the Bible and culminated when God the Father sent God the Son in the power of God the Spirit to save sinners like you and me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved from the wrath of God. He will set you free from the penalty of your sin. He will set you free from the power of your sin. And on that great day, He will set you free from the very presence of sin. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners like you and me. And so, beloved, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And He saved you from your sin. And beloved, you need to know that God has not only saved you from God's wrath, but He has saved you into God's kingdom. He has saved you into God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, loved ones, you are born again. You are given a heart of flesh to replace your wicked heart of stone. God has made you spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. And He has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. In God's kingdom, loved ones, you are justified. On the cross, Jesus exchanged your sinfulness for His righteousness. And in that great exchange, it means that you, beloved... You are righteous in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that your sin has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You are justified in His sight. What freedom we have over sin and fear and guilt and shame. 
Christian, you are righteous in Jesus Christ. So set aside the sin that so easily entangles you. Set aside the shame that so easily bears you down. And run the race that is set before you for Jesus' sake. In God's kingdom, you are born again and you are justified. And in God's kingdom, loved one, you are adopted. You are adopted. God has taken you, an enemy of God, and made you a son and a daughter of God. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Loved ones, you are adopted into the family of God. You have God as your heavenly Father, and you are His child. What a privilege. What a privilege to be a child of God. You have the ear of your Father in heaven. And so what does Peter tell us to do? Peter says that we ought to cast our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. God, your Father, cares for you, Christian. And even more than that, the Father has brought you into the household of faith, into the church. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't just call each other brother or sister because we are traditionalists or because we want to sound cool. It is not cool to call each other brothers and sisters. But it is right and good because you are a brother or a sister in Christ. And you have brothers and sisters to serve you, to care for you, to fight the good fight of faith with you, Christian. So do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together in the household of faith. This is the primary means by which God intends to grow you into maturity in Jesus Christ. It is only in the local church, only in the church, that you can partake of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are meant to grow you in Christ. It's only in the church that you can sit under the preaching of God's trustworthy word. It's only in the church where you have the prayers of righteous people, actually righteous people in Christ, not righteous in themselves, righteous in Christ, who can pray for you, prayers that availeth much. It's only in the church that your soul will be cared for by the shepherds, the under-shepherds of Christ's flock, the elders and the pastors of the church. Christian, you are an adopted child of God. Do not act like a stranger. All of these grand realities, your regeneration, your justification, your adoption, they lead to your sanctification in the kingdom of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to sanctify you, to make you holy like His Father in heaven is holy. All of these grand realities are the foundation and the motivation by the Spirit of Christ to grow you in holiness like Christ. You have a heart, Christian, that loves God. You have a righteousness that's not your own. You have a desire by the Spirit of Christ to obey all of God's commands and a new family to encourage you along as you live out this life of faith in Jesus Christ. And you all know, as well as I know, that our sanctification is not immediate. We are not holy as we wish to be holy. We are not holy as you wish I was holy. <laughs> but we are growing in holiness. God has promised to sanctify us over the course of our lives and with the great assurance that in God's kingdom and by His grace, our sanctification leads to our glorification in heaven. And this is the totality of what it means to be saved. 
Being saved is not a one-time thing. Being saved is being made a new creation. Being set on the narrow path on your way to the celestial city where you have been born again. You've been justified. You've been adopted. You have been sanctified. And on that great day, loved ones, you will be glorified. God is bringing all of redemptive history to a glorious consummation. And if you die in Christ before that day, you have the great and trustworthy assurance that you will be instantaneously made holy in glory with Christ. And at His second coming, on that day, the dead in Christ shall rise with resurrection bodies. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus being made a man means that His creation is still good and it will be made glorious on that day when you will receive a resurrection body like unto His glorious body on that day. And on that day, we will all sing, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see Your lovely face clothed in blood-washed linen, how we'll sing His sovereign grace. And so now we pray, Lord, no longer tarry. No longer tarry. Take our ransomed souls away. Send Your angels now to carry us to realms of endless day. This is what it means to be saved, loved ones. And so the Apostle The Apostle Paul closes this trustworthy saying and our time together this morning with a humble declaration at the end of verse 15. He says that I am the foremost sinner of whom I am the foremost sinner. The Apostle Paul ravaged the early church. He was a terrorist of the early church. He led mobs of angry Jews and Roman soldiers to arrest and imprison and murder Christians. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ. He was a great sinner. But friend, you need to know that so are you. So are you. I'm reminded of the great quote from John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. It's said that at the end of his life, he was going blind and someone asked him a question about how he was doing. And he said, though my eyes are failing and I cannot see, this I recall to mind clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Christ is a great savior. The good news and the friendly reminder to you this morning is that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how great is your Son, Jesus Christ. How great is your plan of redemption that you determined before the foundations of the world that you would give Jesus a bride. And God, how much grace you have shown your people that we could be counted righteous in Jesus Christ, that at the right time you sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. So God, we pray that you would take these truths, these realities And that they would be worked deeply in our souls. 
that we would not simply walk away from your word going about our days under the routine deception that every day will be like the last. For you have promised that you have set us on a new path. You have set us on a new course where you are making us more and more like Jesus day after day until that great day. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would come, even now, that you would come and that you would make us like Jesus once and for all. God, we pray until that day you would hold us fast and that we would be thankful for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.